This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I am, of course, Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. Thanks for joining us. For those of you watching... On Paramount Plus and CBS News streaming, you are seeing this from one of our studios in the Washington, D.C. Bureau. For those listening, just imagine we're in a very dark studio and it's really cool television. Our guest this week for his very first interview since leaving government, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Doctor, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for coming yet again to The Takeout. Thank you. Very good to be with you, Major. So let's talk about where we are with COVID. There are a couple of things that are generating, I think, well-placed headlines globally. One, variant XBB 1.5. What do we know about it? What is its level of risk and how should we think about it January, February, March of this year? Right. Well, it's a variant that has emerged rather rapidly, which means it has a transmission advantage over the variants that were in place when it first entered into our society. It started off less than 1%, then went to 1%, and then went up now with an average throughout the country of about 40% of the variants are this XBB 1.5. In certain regions of the country, the Northeast, for example, it's as high as 70%. It has some characteristics that we know of and some that we need to wait to see how it plays out. What we do know is that likely on the basis of its ability to bind to the receptors in your nasopharynx, that it likely transmits much, much more efficiently than the existing variants. Remember, we had BA 5.4, and then we had a few other variants that were all Omicron-related. This seems to be now superseding them. That we know. So we're going to be seeing, and we already are, an uptick in infections that particularly are true for a number of reasons. A, the inherent increased transmissibility of the virus, 
the fact that we're entering into the cold months of the late fall and early winter. We're just coming out of a holiday season where people tend to aggregate and congregate indoors. So we're going to see an uptick in infections. What we're also seeing is a bit of an uptick in hospitalizations. Now, what we hope happens is that the delta or the ratio between the number of infections and the number of hospitalizations hopefully stays at that lower level that it has been throughout Omicron compared to Delta, which we had over a year ago. So right now we're in that zone where we're hoping that we don't see a major spike in hospitalizations that lead to an increase in deaths. That's the reason why we're telling people the obvious messages. Get vaccinated if you're not vaccinated. If you look at the number of infections, hospitalizations particularly, and deaths among unvaccinated people compared to people who are vaccinated and boosted. And remember, Omicron is a virus that really requires three shots. You know, you need your two shots plus the boost. So the people who haven't been boosted, and remember, we only have 68% of the population have been vaccinated. One half of them have received a, a, a single boost. And the thing that I find very disturbing, Major, is that the updated BA 5, 4.5 uh, variant, the, the 5.4 variant that we have, the new updated vaccine has been, of the people who are eligible to receive it, somewhere like 14% of them have received it. Now, And it's available. You it's can it's get it. totally available. It's been available since the end of the summer, beginning of the fall. We've got to do better than that. And it's understandable that people are fatigued. We've had three years now where literally now this week in the United States, the realization of what was going on in China, we're now entering the fourth year Mm -hmm. of that. So it's understandable that people are exhausted, but there are things that you can do to protect yourself and your family and society. It's not only about vaccine, it's about prudent wearing of masks, mm-hmm. not mandating, you say mandate people, you know, it's, it's radioactive and they recall, but when you're in a crowded indoor setting, particularly when you're having an uptick of a new variant, it just makes sense to wear masks. Also getting um, tested when you're going into a situation where you might be exposed or exposing family members in an unknown situation, a dinner or a social gathering, good ventilation. There are a lot of things that we can do to help protect us from what might be another surge. You mentioned China. There are a couple of headlines also. One, the World Health Organization is very doubtful that China is reporting with any accuracy whatsoever the number of deaths currently experienced related to COVID in China. And there are now talk of travel restrictions on those leaving China. Your thoughts on both? Well, certainly the Chinese, unfortunately, get very opaque when it comes to what's going on in their own country. Even throughout. And they've been throughout. And there really is no reason to do that. It goes way back to the bird flu. It goes back to SARS-CoV-1. What has happened is that early on in the outbreak, the Chinese installed a very, very strict, somewhat draconian restriction, zero COVID. Well, in the beginning, that saved them from getting a lot of infections, a lot of hospitalizations, a lot of death. When you do something like that, you should do it on a temporary basis so that it will allow you to institute and put in place interventions that will allow you to open up. Right. Buy you time. 
buy you time, whether it's buying time to build hospitals and get ventilators for the sick people, or if it's buying you time to get your population vaccinated with a good vaccine, particularly the vulnerable and the vulnerable mostly are the elderly. So what the Chinese did not do effectively is they did the draconian measures, but they didn't adequately get people vaccinated, particularly the elderly. They did that for so long, a very prolonged period of restrictions, that even in the authoritarian state of China, people just said enough is enough. So they began to rebel, protested across the country, country, which is very unusual. The Chinese government got a little bit shaky about that. So they said, okay, if we don't open up, we're going to be in political trouble. So they opened up and letting people out. And now many of those people are not properly vaccinated. They're either vaccinated but haven't gotten appropriate boosts or importantly, the elderly for a number of reasons, including their own resistance Mm -hmm. to getting vaccinated. Now you have a very vulnerable population and the models that people are putting forth are really rather scary in the sense of disturbing for China. Million, million and a half, two million deaths. It is estimated that there have been about 250 million infections from the beginning of December to the end of December. I mean, that's a substantial fraction of the population when you talk about it, even though there are 1.3 billion population. And they're going to start and have started to see hospitalizations go up and deaths go up. And yet again, when you compare the numbers that are coming from the sources in China that are fundamentally health people and scientists compared to the official word, they're very far apart. Mm -hmm. And that has always been the case. Before we go to break, we have about about a minute. Uh, Should there be travel restrictions? You know, that's 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 a tough one. I mean, I I, I think that there there certainly is a place for that. If they would be a bit more transparent about what was going on, I think people like the Europeans and the United States and the WHO would not have to be pushing back on them because they really are not very transparent. Should Americans be fearful about traveling to China? You know, again, I'm not giving I'm no longer giving official (laughs) recommendations, but there's enough infection in the United States, I would say, that fear of traveling to another country, I think, has to be tempered by that. I mean, we already have a lot of infection. If you were in a situation where you had no infection here Mm -hmm. and that you had a lot of infection someplace else, you would say, well, be careful. I think with the State Department will make their decision about travel alerts and travel advisories, and I'll leave that to them. Very good. That is a voice of, I think it's a very familiar voice to Americans for a lot of reasons. Dr. Anthony Fauci, he's our special guest here on The Takeout. I'm Major Garrett. Stick with us. Segment two is coming up in just one moment. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop. Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. 
Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. However you find this program, streaming services, that's Paramount Plus, CBS News Streaming, Great radio stations around the country, including Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124, or our earliest adopters, our most beloved adopters, podcast platforms. Thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks for getting the vibe of the show. Dr. Anthony Fauci is our special guest. It's great to see you again, Dr. Fauci. Uh, It's not just COVID. We're in the flu season. There's RSV. There were conversations before the holidays about the triple-demic, about hospitals and everyone being, if not stressed, possibly overwhelmed by these three things. Where are we with that? How would you assess midway through this flu season? Well, um, we're not out of the flu season. We're not out of RSV. Uh, However, thankfully, what we've seen is a peak early and coming down dramatically, particularly among RSV. Got to be careful with RSV. You could have a secondary peak, but it certainly is not on the vertical rise that we saw a month or more ago. It's turned around and come down. That's a very serious disease, particularly for young children, five years of age and younger, and the elderly. And you know, for a while there, the pediatric hospitals were stressed with regard to the number of available ICU beds, which not only is difficult for the children who have RSV, but for the children who have other diseases that need intensive care if the beds are all occupied. That has been alleviated somewhat by the fact that we've peaked and come down. The same with the flu. If you look at the CDC's website on flu view, we saw for a few weeks going up in an almost vertical way. Over the last couple of weeks, it's plateaued and is starting to come down. Got to be careful because we've seen patterns where it's up, down, and then it comes back up again. Particularly, right. and millions of Americans were hanging out with one another over Christmas exactly. and New Year's. We were all at airports, train stations, bus depots, right. and the like. So. We probably should be cautious until we see numbers all through January. Absolutely. And that gets to the situation that we spoke about just a moment ago, Major, where when you're talking about common sense hygiene and public health measures, that if you go into a crowded indoor congregate setting and you wear a mask, you don't compelled to wear a mask, you wear it because of good judgment. You're protecting yourself not only from COVID, but also from RSV and from influenza, a simple thing like wearing a mask in a congregate setting. I was traveling through airports the last week, and I've adopted this strategy. I'd like you to evaluate it. When I'm in the terminal, I have my, my, my N95 mask on. When I get on the plane, because of the recirculated air and the HEPA filters, I take it off. 
I feel that the plane is actually fine because the air is so frequently right. recirculated. But in terminals, the air is more stagnant and we are much closer together. Good idea or bad idea? Well, you're totally factually correct on what you said. But the second part of the idea, I would lean the other way. Okay. Because even though you're absolutely correct, the recirculation and the filtering of air in an airplane is so much better than the situation of the crowded uh, situation you see when you're in an airport, particularly if you're online in a food Mm -hmm. court or something like that. However, even though it's circulating well, you're not completely protected. Uh, For example, I was on a plane recently in the last week, and I had a mask on, and I was one of maybe less than 5% of the people on on the plane had a mask on, and you could hear people behind me, in front of me, (coughs) coughing and coughing. Now, you could have a good filter system, but those filter systems are not perfect. So my feeling would be, particularly if you are a person who's elderly or who has an underlying condition, or might go home to someone in your household that has an underlying condition. When you're in an airplane, particularly on a long flight, I would suggest you wear a mask. Another headline I saw this week. Elon Musk says he'll release Fauci files on Twitter this week. That story published January 3rd. We are recording this. Let me double check my watch. January 5th. What are your concerns, if any, about the Fauci files on Twitter? Well, A, no concerns. And B, I have no idea what he's talking about. (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of misinformation, conspiracy theories, disinformation going on. And of course, there, Elon I, Musk also said that you should be prosecuted. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what he's talking I about have, there? I don't have, Major, I don't have a clue of what he's talking about. Well, as near as I can tell, Dr. Fauci, it is about the idea that the National Institutes of Health funded gain-of-function research, some of that at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and that, some believe, is responsible for right. COVID. Well, if you look at the, first of all, collaborative research internationally has been something that has been extremely beneficial to society in general. The reason a very small grant, about $120,000 a year, was given to the Chinese, which as a matter of fact, resulted in research that was able to definitively prove that the original SARS-CoV-1 went from a bat to a civet cat to a human and led to a small, modest, but nonetheless serious outbreak in 2002 and 2003. The funding that was done was surveillance funding, going to do surveillance of people and looking at the bat viruses in the environment and studying them in a test tube, not to make them more whatever, infective or whatever, but to determine if they were a threat did they in fact bind to receptors that would be, make them amenable to be transmitted to humans? Those viruses, when you look at it, and here's the reason why people get confused. If you look at those viruses, those bad viruses, and you look at SARS-CoV-2, there is no chance in the world, if you ask anybody who knows anything about virology, that those viruses that were studied under the auspices of NIH funding, could have turned into SARS-CoV-2, even if you tried to make them turn into it. Because they're evolutionarily 
so far removed, it's kind of like you're saying you're going to make a motorcycle turn into a Mack truck. You know, it's very, or a mouse turn into a monkey, you know, or a snake turn into an elephant. they evolutionarily so different. Yet, just because in good faith, with good science, the NIH funded a small subgrant to do surveillance, all of a sudden, the new conspiracy theory is, ah, the NIH-funded research that created the virus. And that is apples and oranges, absolutely not the case. There are acolytes of Elon Musk who say, when you read gain of function, you should just translate that to bioweapon. That's absolutely incorrect. For example, the reason we don't even use the word gain of function, we use the word, what kind of guardrails do you need to put on a proposed experiment? What are the, the, the rails that you put up of in order to do the experiment, you have to get special permission. That was well worked out by bodies beyond the NIH, the National Academies of Science, the Office of Science and Technology Policy. And the experiments that were done were well within those guidelines. Gain of function is such a nebulous generic term that, for example, the vaccine, did you get, did you get vaccinated with, with, with flu this year? Did you get yeah, your flu? Yes. Okay. The vaccine that is made for influenza is to take a virus and give it the gain of function right. to grow in an egg to get the vaccine that is now protecting you against flu. So we don't use gain of function when we're talking about that now because it's such a broad category mm -hmm. that it can get misinterpreted by people of gain of function means bad things. Well, no. Uh, in the 45 seconds we have before we go to break, anything you want to personally say to Elon Musk? No, I have nothing to say to him, really. I mean, he, he, I don't understand what he's doing. It's just unfortunate. He is a billionaire who has, you know, millions and millions of followers, and he's spreading nonsense uh, on his, um, on his, whatever it is, his Twitter account. Right, and, and he's not, not only the account holder, he runs the whole company. Right. No, I have no comment to him. Yeah. Not even back off? He's going to do what he's going to do. Whether I say back off or not is going to be irrelevant, Major. <laughs> that is the voice of Anthony Fauci, our special guest. When we come back for segment three, I want to ask him about something that happened earlier this week on Monday Night Football. I think you know what I'm talking about. I'm Major Garrett, back for segment three. The takeout in just one second. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. 
Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Dr. Anthony Fauci is our special guest for his first interview since leaving as President Biden's chief medical advisor and head of the infectious disease research at the National Institutes of Health. So, Dr. Fauci, I don't know if you saw it, but on Monday Night Football this week, DeMar Hamlin, a player for the Buffalo Bills, collapsed on the field. You're not an NFL expert and you're not an expert on any cardiovascular issues the player might have had. But what I want to ask you about, Dr. Fauci, is, as I want to do in moments like that, I kept an eye on Twitter. And I can't tell you exactly how many minutes transpired, but it was less than 20 before people on Twitter began to say, well, clearly the vaccine caused his seizure. Right. And that had a multiplier effect on Twitter, as these things tend to do. What's your reaction to that? Well, my reaction is one of concern about... Is it horror? Borderline? More than concern? Yeah, it's horror that misinformation and disinformation, uh, when you have a platform like social media that exponentially spreads in its best form, proper and important and value-added information can spread, which is good. Yes. The thing as a public health person and as a physician and a scientist and my, my identity as a physician is the thing that gets pained the most by that. Because what that means, Major, is that yet again, another conspiracy theory, complete nonsense, is going to have some people make a decision for themselves and their family not to get vaccinated, which may cost them their lives. So that's the thing that's so horrible about it. And if you want to go out spouting nonsense, conspiracy theories and spreading it all around, fine, except if it results in a person suffering and perhaps dying. And that's what happens when disinformation disincentivizes people to get proper interventions for a threat like a pandemic. And in some of these instances, as you well know, Dr. Fauci, there is some shred of evidence myocarditis was related to vaccines. It is a heart issue. Right. I'm not a doctor. You are. That's a shred right. of evidence. A very small shred. Right. What, and, and explain how then this can get conflated. Of course. In a very, very rare case, some of the mRNA vaccines can cause a self-limiting, almost invariably benign, inflammatory response in the heart, which generally resolves in a very short period of time. It is very, very rare. When you compare that with the negative effects on the heart, by myocarditis or pericarditis, which is inflammation of either the heart muscle or the covering of the heart, and heart failure and heart medical problems, overwhelmingly COVID itself causes that in a dramatically higher rate than the relatively benign mild myocarditis that you might have with a vaccine, which is very, very rare. So that little thread of proof is that, is it possible that he was vaccinated? And the fact is, someone came out, and I just read this 
I haven't validated it, but I've read that some physician came out and made the incorrect statement that he had just vaccinated this football player a week earlier to to add to the conspiracy that he was recently vaccinated. And therefore, that's why he collapsed on the field. When if you look at the film, it's clear that he had a very big, strong person's shoulder go into his chest which clearly can cause a traumatic injury to the heart. And yet the conspiracy theory about this related to vaccine, you're right, it's spread all over. And that's been something you have been living with and living through the entire COVID process. Now that you're on the other side of government, perhaps you are slightly more capable of being candid about your genuine feelings about that and how much it either traumatizes you or the public health community. But what are your thoughts about what has been said in this space about COVID that you believe scientifically, medically is untrue and the damage it's done? Well, disinformation in any arena is not a good thing. It can lead to negative consequences. So you can never say it's a positive value added phenomenon when it leads to a situation where people do not make use of an intervention that could potentially prevent them from suffering, prevent them from being hospitalized, and prevent them from dying, to me, that's horrible. And I have, it has nothing to do with my being in government or not being in government. I said the same thing, you know, a week ago when I was, when I was still a part of the federal uh, response. And I'll say it now, this is the same thing. Disinformation is the enemy of good public health practices. So Republicans are struggling this week to elect a speaker, but eventually they'll be in control of the House of Representatives. They have made clear in public utterances they want to call you as a witness. Are you prepared to testify? Of course, absolutely. I would willingly do that without any problem. As you well know, Dr. Fauci, as a veteran of Washington, uh, some people, when they are prepared to do that, uh, obtain legal counsel to help them. Have you? Well, I, I certainly will, will, will consult with legal counsel when someone says that they're out there wanting to prosecute me. <laughs> I'd be kind of stupid not to. <laughs> but in the preparation for oversight hearings or anything of the like? I, I, have, I, I will likely, uh, pre- I mean, obviously, first of all, I'd like to see who's going to ask me and what it's going to be. Likely it'll be before one of the oversight committee. And they usually ask you to prepare a statement and then to make an oral and a written statement. I've done that hundreds of times or Ready in congressional hearings, both appropriations and oversight. So I definitely will do that and I will cooperate with them absolutely to the full hilt. And is there anything you're afraid that they'll find? No, not at all. Absolutely not. I mean, it's going to be a lot of work, you know, getting prepared and going in, but I have nothing to hide. I could defend everything I've done. And looking back on it, is there anything either you wish you had done differently or said differently throughout the COVID process? Oh, of course. I mean, anyone who says that they wouldn't do anything different is sort of implying that they were perfect in what they've done. We tried our best. That's one thing I would not do differently. We've tried our best. However, we were dealing and are dealing with a dynamic situation that's a moving target. And we always go back to, well, you know, you said in the very first weeks that you really didn't have to wear a mask. uh, And then all of a sudden you changed your tune when 
you found out that certain things were operable that weren't before. Well, that's understandable. And I think that is, in fact, following the science, because early on in the outbreak, there were things that we didn't know. We were not aware of the high degree of transmissibility. In fact, the original information from China is that it wasn't particularly easily transmitted. In fact, it was jumping from an animal species in the market to a human, and it wasn't spread readily from human to human. Then we found out that it is spread readily from human to human. Then a couple of weeks later, we found out it's spread through aerosol and can hang out in the air instead of just dropping to the ground with a droplet. And then we found out something very important, that a considerable proportion, anywhere from 50 to 60 percent of the transmissions, come from someone with no symptoms. And when that happened, then we made the change and say, wait a minute, we originally said, you know, you don't need to wear a mask, but now we really encourage you to wear a mask. Sure, that was changing one's mind, but you change one's mind when the data change. If you stick with something as if it were a static situation, then you're really not doing justice to science. But if you change as you get more data and more information, that is the definition of following the science. And we have about uh, 40 seconds and we can continue this conversation on the other side of the break. But and there were there was data being gathered rapidly as covid moved and they were small data sets. They weren't the kind of data sets you would typically rely on to make large scale public health recommendations. Right. You were pulling data as rapidly as right. you could get it. And that was an issue as well, was it not? Absolutely, because the public was demanding to know what was going on. And when you are talking to the public, you've got to make sure they understand. And it's very difficult for them to get to understand that, that the, day, that the, the, the opinion or the recommendation we're giving you now is based on the data as we have it. And we it may might, get more data. We may get more data month. a week from now or a month from now. Hold that thought, Dr. Fauci. Segment four of The Takeout coming up in just one second. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Dr. Anthony Fauci is our special guest. Um, you are not retired, are you, sir? Uh, well, I have separated from federal service, but I'm going to continue to be involved in the public health aspects of this, not only of COVID, but of HIV, which has mm -hmm. been something that's been a very important part of the last four decades of my life. So Can I will, you tell us who you might be aligned with or what kind of things you're working on? 
Well, I'm going to certainly stay in the arena of, of public health. I asked myself when I decided to step down from federal service at my age, and I just turned 82 in December 24th, Christmas Eve, what is it that I can do that would still be of considerable benefit to society and to mankind outside of the venue of the federal government? And I came to the conclusion is that to continue to write, to lecture, and to advise with the theme in mind of encouraging particularly the younger generation of people to either get into science in the first place, or if you are, to get into public health, and if you are, to perhaps consider public service. And I have the experience of 54 years of being a federal employee and a scientist and a clinician, and 38 years as the director of the Infectious Diseases Institute, and having the privilege of advising seven presidents. So I have a considerable amount of experience in this arena, and I would like to share that experience, particularly with the younger generation. So that's what I'd like to be doing over the next several years. What do you have to say to Americans who are not anti-vaccine, but are vaccine hesitant, whether it's yeah. COVID or any other kind? Yeah. Basically say, look, there's a pharmaceutical industry, there's billions of dollars that they can make in profits. I'm not sold on either the efficacy or the appropriateness right. for me, my spouse, or my children yeah. to take for, vaccines. Well, the first thing I would, I do, and say I would do, I actually do, is you've got to respect that when people have that hesitancy. Because behind the hesitancy of many people are some reasonable questions that might, in fact, be unanswered for those people. So rather than immediately having a negative reaction to that, try to get to sit down with them if you're personally involved or if you're on a show like you and I are now, Major, to explain to people, let's look at the data. Forget opinion, forget pharmaceutical company, forget conspiracy. Look at the data. Look at the difference between a vaccinated person and an unvaccinated person when it comes to tangible things that you can understand. Infection, hospitalization, serious disease, death. And I think the confusion among people is that the vaccines, at least when you're further out months into the vaccine, don't protect as well against initial infection. But what they do protect very clearly against is severe disease leading to hospitalizations and death. So you try to get people to understand that data and you say, you know, the chances of you're getting hospitalized and dying if you're an otherwise healthy person is very, very low, but it's not zero. Mm -hmm. If you're an elderly person, that risk goes up. If you're an elderly person with an underlying condition, that goes up even more. And the data clearly prove that. And you try to get the person to make their own analysis and to come to their own conclusion that even though they were initially uh, somewhat hesitant, when they look at the data, they say, you know, the safety data are overwhelming. Let me give you an example. Billions of doses of the COVID vaccine have been given globally. The number of severe adverse events, minuscule, minuscule compared to the protection you get from the seriousness of getting infected, particularly if you're in a risk category. There's also this notion that in your position as head of infectious disease research, 
the pharmaceutical industry and government allocations create this possibly corrupt brew of money and influence and profits. That's one of the things that you read about when you read screeds or books about vaccines and all of this, that, that you can't trust this collection of power, money, and influence. You've lived this world for decades. Right. Respond. Well, I mean, obviously people, right now it goes beyond public health and medicine. The idea of trusting in anything is now being torn apart by this normalization of untruths, where we live in an arena, in a society where people can say things that are completely outlandish, and yet people get so used to that that they don't push back on it. So if there's no truth, there's no reality. If there's no reality, who can you trust? So the entire system gets turned over on its head. And I think the best way to counter that is as to the extent you can do it, continue to speak about, to write about, to interact in a way that's based on solid scientific data, facts, and evidence. Truth will prevail. Once you get into the arena of distortions and uh, falsities and conspiracies, then trust goes, blows up in smoke. About midway through the pandemic, I read an article in The Atlantic that had the headline, something to this effect, we won't remember COVID the right way, meaning we're going to forget things about this. We're going to misremember parts of it. What do you want us as a country to most remember about what we went through, not only in terms of fixing ourselves on that reality, but preparing ourselves yeah. for the future? Well, there, there are a few things. I'll try to be as brief as possible. I, I look upon the response, the preparedness and response in two buckets, a scientific bucket and a public health bucket. And if you look at the scientific bucket, the fact that we were able to get a brand new virus that we knew about in January of 2020, and in 11 months, go from a brand new virus to a vaccine that was tested in tens of thousands of people, that was proven to be safe and highly effective in 11 months and put into the arms of individuals. That was based on decades of investment in basic and clinical biomedical research that allowed us to be able to do that, and that has saved millions of lives throughout the world and at least hundreds of thousands of lives in the United States. So that's the scientific. Let us remember that we did that right. Let's make sure we maintain our investment in basic and clinical research. Then you get to the public health bucket. We didn't do so well in that. We weren't as well prepared as we thought we were. There wasn't a degree of transparency, communication, the kind of infrastructure at the local public health level. We didn't do well. We've got to make sure that as we prepare and learn lessons for the future, that we look at the things we didn't do very well. Now, overriding all of this, Major, that I think is going to be historically very relevant, if ever there was a time when as a nation we needed to pull together against the common enemy of the virus, it was when you're dealing with a historic virus that has now killed over a million Americans. And yet, all of this was occurring in an arena of profound divisiveness in our country, where people would make a decision about whether to utilize a life-saving 
intervention based on an ideological concern. How could you have a situation where red states are much less vaccinated and more people dying than in blue states that are better vaccinated and less people getting into trouble? That is unfair to humanity and unfair to both sides of the ideological middle. (laughs) That is the voice of Dr. Anthony Fauci, our special guest. For our radio audience, we need to say farewell for those of you watching on CBS News streaming and Paramount Plus and on the podcast platform. Stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial and Major Garrett. I'll see you next week. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. This is your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Dr. Anthony Fauci is our guest. This is Funny Games part of the program, Dr. Fauci, as you well remember. So tell me, what has changed in your life, even incrementally, now that you're on the other side of more than four decades of federal government service? Well, it's a realization of having to learn things that you had lots of good, talented staff doing for you. (laughs) Such as? Such as how to really understand things in the computer when they go wrong, you can't say hello. You can't call IT, can you? (laughs) No. You're IT now. Yeah, I'm I'm everything. Which, you know, there's a certain um, challenge to that that's, that's positive. You know, it's kind of like when you're first learning medicine, you know, everything is new. And you have to kind of learn it and you have to learn it well because it's important. Um, you can read about it. You can look at the example of people. But ultimately, you've got to do it yourself. So that's one of the things. And the other thing that, that's in a pot, first of all, the, the, the volume of things you've got to do yourself that other people did for you can, can be overwhelming. But I have a great psychiatrist, my wife. Christine. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Christine. And Christine just is in a, in a wonderful, typical way says, you know, Tony, one day at a time, you know, you're not going to fix everything in one day. It's going to take a while to get it the way you want it to be. And then you'll be cruising again. Have the sleep patterns of Dr. Anthony Fauci changed I'm at all? Try- <laughs> I'm trying to change it, ma- uh, Major, but my physiology is working against me. I said the other day, I think I'm going to sleep at least 45 minutes longer than the 5 a.m. wake up, which I usually do to go into work. And sure enough, at one minute to five, I woke up without even the alarm. So I got to get my physiology back in shape. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, you want to write a memoir, as I understand I do. it. I do. How much will COVID take up of that? I would think a mild to modest and not a dominant proportion of it. How much will AIDS research take up? Of a fair amount. I've been involved in HIV for 40 plus years from the very first beginning. The experiences I've had in taking care of patients, that painful experience before drugs were available, the extraordinary uh, elation when we got drugs that were life-saving, the implementation of that. Uh, my institute and I played a major role in that. Yep. My role with President Bush in PEPFAR to develop a program that has saved 21 million lives. Those are the kind of things, as well as a lot of the other science. Oh, COVID will be in it, but it's not going to dominate a memoir. I want to point out to my audience, there have been many testimonials and uh, farewells written on your behalf. And some go back to that history early on in the AIDS crisis. And I want my audience to understand that COVID was not the first time that you were vilified. Right. I would argue that you were vilified as harshly, if not more harshly, in the early onset of AIDS and the conflict over how the federal government was or was not properly researching a possible intervention. Right. Than you were during COVID. Right. But there's a difference in what was going right. on. Totally. Explain to my audience the difference. Oh, this is apples and watermelons difference. It really is. Early on, the activist community rightfully wanted a seat at the table in the design of clinical trials and in a discussion of the rigidity of the regulatory process in making available to them drugs on a compassionate basis when they had no other options of a disease that was killing themselves and all of their friends. They wanted a seat at the table and they wanted to gain the attention of the federal government. I happened to be, because I was working on it, the face of the federal government. And we're talking 42 years ago, 41 years ago. And so what they did is they tried to gain attention and they became very theatrical, confrontative, you know, iconoclastic. And, protests. So, yes. and they got my attention. And I think one of the best things I've ever done in my life, Major, was I decided, let me just put aside the theatrics and listen to what they had to say. And when I listened to them, it became clear that they were absolutely correct. The system was too rigid and was designed in a way that was not able to address. And not responsive to that crisis. It totally was not responsive to that crisis. So we needed to change it. So I went from someone who was the rigid scientist regulator to someone who became an activist. And they converted me into an activist because they were right. Never once never once for a moment that I feel threatened by them physically. They said, oh, we're going to hang you in effigy. They wanted my attention because they wanted me to hear something that was the truth. That is orders of magnitude different from the conspiracy theory, the ad hominem, the credible death threats that I get now. When people try to compare those two, they are so different, they shouldn't even be in the same you know, discussion. It's just totally different. Are you still getting death threats? Yes. Do you think that will ever end? I hope so. You know, I'd hate to think for the rest of my life that I was going to have people who are crazy enough to want to harm me because I have done things that have saved millions of lives. That's kind of, how do you get your arms around that? 
we developed the vaccine together with the pharmaceutical company. My institute, my vaccine research center, was not alone, but part of the team that developed the vaccines that have saved millions of lives. And I have been preaching nothing but the practice of good public health principles to save lives. So how does that lead to uh, hassling death threats, uh, attacking my family, my wife and my children online and, and essentially harassing them? That is very, very different than 40 some odd years ago when the activists were trying to gain our attention. Different indeed. I thank you for explaining that to my audience, Dr. Fauci. Always a pleasure to sit down with you, sir. I wish you the best. Thank you very much. I'm Major Garrett. This has been The Takeout Outtake Especial. We'll see you all next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.